Well, it's good to be with you. Why don't we start by beginning in prayer? Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Soften our hearts that they might receive your word. Transform our wills that we might be doers of your word. Loose our tongues that we might proclaim that word. And we ask this for the glory of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. I was born to medical missionary parents. And my earliest memories are therefore of an island in Papua New Guinea. They are memories of skimming across turquoise seas with my family in outrigger canoes, visiting islands of white sand, coral and brilliantly coloured fish. In my memory, Papua New Guinea was paradise and I could not imagine a more idyllic place to grow up. Now one of the blessings of growing up in Papua New Guinea was one that I did not realise until much later. It was the total absence of television. You see, the absence of television meant that I was introduced to the world of reading. Um, My mum loved books. She could never stay away from libraries. And so when we moved to Port Moresby, my childhood was spent going to the Port Moresby Library. Weekly family expeditions were made and the whole family would plunder the shelves for the latest books to devour. Now, to tell the truth, I am not sure when I discovered my favourite novel. My suspicion was is that it's not in Port Moresby, but perhaps one of those books that are regularly required reading in secondary school. However, one day I was introduced to a novel by by Hemingway called The Old Man and the Sea. When I read it, my childhood, personality, love of novels came together in a wonderful synchronicity. The storyline is based around a reclusive old man who fishes alone in a small skiff. And on this particular day... He catches the fish of his life. In a gruelling battle, he finally loses this magnificent fish to sharks as he tries to bring it home. Now, I need to tell you that this novel is skillfully written. The skill of the author is so great that even today, all I have to do is to renew the whole story is to pick up my battered copy and turn to the first sentence of the book. And from there, I flip to the last four or five pages and suddenly my memory is tapped into The story comes flashing back to me. I'm drawn again into the pages. Friends, the books of Samuel contain some of the most engaging of all stories in Scripture. But they're not just stories. They're also books of profound theological depth. They contain an enormous wealth of reflection on God, on humanity, on God's purposes among his people and in his world. And I'm convinced you can do the same with them as I do with the old man in the sea. What I mean is this, if you can understand the first chapter or two, if you can understand the last four or so chapters, if you have a vague grasp of what happens in between, then you will have grasped the main point of these books. What's more, you'll have a good grasp of the theology of the books. However, even if you don't have this, even if you had only read the first chapter of, and, and a half of Samuel, then you would ha- still have most of the fundamental ideas that undergird the whole book. And these ideas are so fundamental, they continue through into the New Testament. They undergird much of Christian faith and practice. That is, they orient us towards what God has done in and through the coming of his son into the world. They also unlock some deep secrets to Christian faith. So in in the first two talks, we are going to look at this first chapter and a half. In fact, in this talk, we are going to skim over those first chapter and a half and get a grasp on it. Let me introduce you, though, to the main character. Her name is Hannah. Hannah is a Jewish woman. She's married to a certain Elkanah. 
From what we can tell, Elkanah is a man with a very good Israel, Israelite pedigree. He also seems to be a man of uh, financial substance. We know that because he can afford two wives and a number of children. We also know that Elkanah is a godly man and a devout worshipper. For each year he fulfills the law of Moses. Annually he makes that visit with his whole family to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant is housed in these days. So let's track along with the family in this passage. And as we do, I want you to focus on Hannah. In verses 4 to 8, we find her to be a woman under great stress. Look at what our author tells us. Verse 8, she's downhearted. Verse 10, she's in deep anguish. Verse 11, she's afflicted or in misery. Verse 15, Hannah herself says she is deeply troubled. Her spirit is hard or severe or fierce, as the Hebrew says. Verse 16 describes her as being in one in great anxiety, vexation or grief. Can you see the picture? It's overwhelming here. Here is a woman in desperate straits. So desperate is her situation that verse 10 says she's driven to uncontrollable and bitter weeping. Hannah is a woman to feel for. She is psychologically at rock bottom. So let's dig deeper and see if we can find out the cause of her distress. First, we need to understand Hannah's social world. You see, verse 2 told us that Hannah is barren. And in the society in which she lived, the role of the woman was to bear women, to bear children and raise them. Uh, And it was a great shame if you could not bear children for your husband. It was something probably gossiped about in the village. To not be able to bear children probably made a woman feel worthless and unfulfilled. But the pressure doesn't only come from the society she lives in. The pressure also comes from God. Take a look at verse, the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. Twice we are told the Lord had closed her womb. That's a very unusual statement. The writer is making clear that God's the source of her stress. He had closed her womb. But take another look at verses 6 and 7. It's not just society and the Lord that are the source of her grief. These verses tell us that the other wife of Elkanah would use God's affliction of her to persecute her. The provoke here is, has the sense of humiliate her. Peninnah humiliated Hannah because of her barrenness. So see if you can take in the big picture. Hannah, under pressure to produce children, known to be barren, surrounded by a woman who can produce children at ease, and that woman rubs Hannah's nose in the fact, mocks her, provokes her, humiliates her. And then there's her husband. Now let's have a look at how he reacts and see how he adds to her stress. Look at verse 8. We're told that Elkanah's response would be to say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Elkanah's questions have the tone of reproach and impatience. We know that Elkanah loves his wife Hannah, but his words ring with frustration. She seems to be fixated on the issue of her own problems, and he'd be happy if she were fixated or passionate about him. So there we have it, Hannah. Under great stress, stress comes to the head annually at the visit to the temple. Perhaps she senses that somehow the Lord is part of the problem. And so everything comes to its head on on those days. And verse 7 says she can't even eat. But now look at verse 9. Up until this point, Hannah had been a victim. No, not now. She stands up. And what does she do? She rises. She goes to the one responsible for shutting her womb. And look at her prayer in verse 11. And her vow, she says to God, Lord Almighty, 
If only you will look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. Number of things to note here. First, she asked God to remember. Now in Hebrew, to remember doesn't mean just to recall something that you'd forgotten. No, it means to ask God to do something. Like what he does when he remembers Israel in Egypt back in Exodus. Hannah, in other words, wants him to do another Egypt. She wants him to hear her groaning and to decide to do something about it. The next thing to notice is another word that Hannah uses. The NIV gets it right in our translation here. It records Hannah using the word give twice in the verse. She says she asked God to give her a son. And she tells the Lord that she will give that son to the Lord for lifelong service as a Nazarite. Now, so from now on, we're going to have to keep watch, aren't we? Will God answer her prayer? And will God give Hannah a son? And will Hannah give that son back to God? Let's see how things go. Look at verses 12 to 19. Eli the priest, you see, has been watching from a distance. At first, he thinks she's drunk. Then she explains and he pronounces a blessing. And look at verse 17. The NIV uses the word grant, but the Hebrew uses the word give. This is what Hannah would have heard. Eli says, go in peace. And may the God of Israel give what you have asked of him. Can you imagine how Hannah would have heard this? She's just used the word twice with God. And now God's representative uses that same word with her. And it's my guess that this solidifies a change in her. And look at verse 18. She returns to her family. Before going to God, she couldn't eat. Now she can. Now she can worship the Lord with her family. She's no longer sad. Verse 19 then heaps verb upon verb. The family arise. They worship. They go back to Ramah. Elkanah makes love to Hannah. God remembers her. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth. She names the boy Samuel. These verses piled upon each other tell us that God has acted with speed. He has given Hannah her request. Now the initiative lies with her. Will she keep her side? God has given to her. Will she give this longed-for child back to the Lord? And immediately we strike a problem. Look at verse 21. Elkanah goes up to Shiloh. He goes with all his family. But verse 22 tells us that one is missing. Hannah does not go up to Shiloh. Her promise to give seems to have a little shadow over it. And Elkanah appears to recognise this. Look at verse 23. He tells Hannah to stay. Then he says, only... May the Lord make good his word. In other words, he's urging Hannah, don't stand in the way of God's word being fulfilled. In verse 23, we find Hannah on her own again. Given that weaning took two or three years in uh, in the ancient world, it's entirely likely that Hannah did not go up to Shiloh for two or three years. And so we begin to wonder, will she indeed give her son to God? And then all doubt is blown away in verse 24. She acts, she goes up to Shiloh with a substantial offering and the sacrifice is slaughtered and the boy is presented to Eli the priest. In verse 27, she uses the word give again. 
Again, the NIV uses the word grant, but in the original, the word is the same word we've seen before. It's the word forgive. She asked God to give her a son. She promised she'd give him back to the Lord and the Lord answered her prayer and Hannah has fulfilled her promise. She gives. Out of her grief, God has been at work. But the story's not quite finished yet. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. She and Elkanah go home to Ramah. Hannah might have her desire, but in his mercy, God has used her to fulfill his desire. You see, this child will grow into a prophet who will bring God's word to all of Israel. He will oversee the introduction of kingship in Israel. So there's the story. Now it's time to stand back a bit and just see what we can make of it. What does God want us to learn from this story? Well, the first thing to say is that Hannah herself tells us what we can learn. She does some extended theological reflection upon these events in her song of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now, I don't want to focus on those things today. No, I want to focus on what we can learn about God from Hannah in her situation. Friends, we live in a world that loves power and that looks to the powerful. Powerful people, powerful nations, powerful weapons, powerful whatever. But Hannah is not among the powerful, is she? No, she's among the helpless. And her story tells us that these sorts of situations bring delight to our God. Why? You see, the very nature of helplessness is that you cannot rely on human ability. Isn't that true? You cannot rely on your own resourcefulness. You are exactly that, helpless. And do you know what? God thrives on helplessness. For when people are without resources, they can finally do what they were designed by him to do. They can turn away from depending upon themselves and they can depend upon him. In weakness, they can be strong as they turn to the help of the helpless, the helper of the helpless. And time and time again, we see this in the Bible, don't we? Israel in Egypt, Israel during the period of the judges, Israel suffering in exile, We see it when persecution reaches its pinnacle in the later chapters of the book of Daniel. And we see it in the world of the New Testament. For there the Israelites are overwhelmed by the power of the Romans. They seek a powerful Messiah who will overthrow the Romans. But what does God do? God acts by sending not a powerful Messiah, but a child. A child who will grow and defeat more powerful enemies, not with a sword, but with a cross. But friends, if we're Christians, then we have seen this God at work in our own lives, haven't we? For those of us who have become Christians have at some time in our existence been aware of the distance that sin forges between us, the the distance that sin forges between God and us. At some time we've become aware that we are sinners And that God is justly angry with our sin. We've realised we cannot bring ourselves to God and that we're helpless. And into such a situation comes the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, Paul tells us that it was while we were still powerless and helpless that Christ died for us and reconciled us to God. Yes, we Christians know the God of the powerless. We know the help of the helpless. We've been where Hannah has been and we have experienced his mercy. 
Because of Jesus, we know that we can confidently draw near to God's throne of grace. And we know that when we do, we will receive grace to help in our time of need. Friends, today we've heard about God. We've learnt again that God is God of the helpless. The God who comes in the form of an infant suckling at his mother's breast. The God who comes to be crucified on a cross. The God who exalts in weakness because there his strength can be magnified. Friends, with that truth in mind, I want us to do some self-reflection. I want to ask us all today, why it is that although we know these things about God, we just don't go to him as Hannah did. Friends, I know that many of you here today feel out of control. Some of us may feel overwhelmed by life and circumstances. Some are embittered by what life has brought us. If that is you, I want to urge you today to refuse to sit in bitterness and anguish. It's time to choose to stand, as Hannah did. Time to refuse to be a victim. Time to make our way to the one who oversees our lives. Let's call upon God to remember, to do what he did with Noah, with Israel, with Hannah. Let's plead with him to listen and act. Now, please hear me correctly. I'm not promising that God will do what he did with Hannah, but I am promising that he will listen. And I am promising that in, it is in his nature to remember the trouble of his people. It is in his nature to meet helplessness with help and powerlessness with rescue. This is his nature. The books of Samuel tell us this time and time again. The high moments in Samuel are characterised by people simply remembering and plainly relying on a God who is sovereign. There are times when people do exactly what Hannah does here. And there are times when God does exactly what he does here. Can you see now why Samuel begins with this story? Because if you can, you'll understand much about Samuel. It begins with this story because this is what God wants us to know about him. He is the hope of the hopeless, the help of the helpless. And it begins with this story because it demonstrates that this is what God wants his people to be like. He wants us to be those who run to him because we know that this is who he is. He wants us to be dependent like Hannah, like Mary, like the Lord Jesus. And with that in mind, I want to close by reading a hymn to you. It's a hymn that's often sung at funerals. But it's a hymn that I think can be sung in the midst of all of life's great hurdles. It's not a new hymn, it's an older hymn. It was written in the 19th century by a man called Henry Francis Light. And it goes like this, listen carefully because I think it captures much that is in this passage. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fall and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour, what but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself, my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine. Oh, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. 
Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Let's pray. Father, please help us to remember that you are the help of the helpless. We thank you that we see this fundamentally in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where you help the helpless. And Father, please help us in life, in death, to remember these things and to trust in you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.